Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, we get to speak to Bill Grace. Now, Bill served more than 33 years with the FBI, working mostly white-collar crime and corruption cases. In this interview, he talks about conducting two high-profiled municipal corruption investigations at the same time. One was directed at the corrupt activities of Camden, New Jersey Mayor Milton Milan, and the other targeted Washington Township, New Jersey Mayor Jerry Luongo. Electronic and physical surveillance revealed that even before Milan entered municipal politics, he was associating with drug dealers as well as members of the Philadelphia mob, and that after being elected first to city council and then as mayor, he continued those relationships. During Milan's corruption trial, the head of the Philly mob cooperated with investigators and testified against Milton Milan. The Luongo case was initiated based on a questionable land deal, but resulted in the mayor being charged with the misuse of the township's community fund. Bill was able to work both of these cases with the assistance of colleagues from the Cherry Hill Resident Agency, which is a resident agency out of the Philadelphia Division, and colleagues from the IRS and the United States Attorney's Office. Both investigations resulted in both mayors being convicted and receiving jail sentences. Now I have to tell you, working two high-profile municipal corruption investigations against mayors of two towns and cities in South Jersey at the same time is a feat, a feat that has earned Bill the nickname Mayor Slayer. I want to give a shout out to retired assistant special agent in charge, Bob Downey, who nicknamed Bill Mayor Slayer. Bob, what a great nickname. Bill will forever be known as the Mayor Slayer, thanks to you. Now, before we get to the interview, I usually like to talk about crime fiction, but this week I've been really busy and I haven't had a chance to read. Well, who am I trying to fool? I haven't really been that busy. I have been binge-watching Shameless on Netflix, but I'm in about the third season and I'm getting kind of bored. So I think I will be able to pull myself away and get back to reading books. I have two really good books that uh, I have in the to be read pile. So I will have to make a decision which one I'm going to crack open first. And hopefully I'll be done by next week and we can talk about uh, either one of those. I am prepared this week to talk about one book very quickly. And that's my book, Pay to Play, which I have told you over and over again, will be coming out on September 20th. If you were listening last week, you know I made the offer to uh, anyone who was interested in being a member of my book launch team that I would be giving away free copies of the ebook. The um, catch was that I would be giving away these free copies of the ebook version of Pay to Play in exchange 
for you being a member of my launch team. You get to read it early uh, that first week when it comes out. Give me an honest review of the book on Amazon and the other platforms where it will be available for purchase. Also, if you enjoy the book, for you to share it with as many people, friends and associates as possible also uh, during that uh, the first couple of weeks when it comes out. So if you're interested, just go to my website and sign up for my crime fiction newsletter. There's a place to put your email on the sidebar. And there's always that wonderful pop up that comes up when you're on my website, and you can enter your email there. This offer is only good until July 31st of 2016. On August 1st, 2016, I will be sending out an email to everyone on my list, even those who signed up for the list before I made this offer. And I will give you more information about being on the book launch team. And I will give you the link to the free ebook version of pay to play. That's enough about pay to play and the free ebook for now. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. I am so pleased to introduce my guest, Bill Grace. Hi, Bill. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I am great. Now, you have so many great cases that we could talk about today. So give us a little tease. What are we going to be hearing from you about today? Uh, The interesting thing about these two cases is that they were worked uh, at the same time, beginning in or around 1998. The first case involved uh, Mayor Milton Milan of Camden, New Jersey, and the second case involved Mayor Jerry Luongo of Washington Township, uh, Gloucester County. So you had two cases, two corruption cases, for two different mayors in South Jersey at the same time. Yes, I did. And I guess that's where the nickname came from, Mayor Slayer? Well, that was a creation of my supervisor and... uh, I let him run with it as much as he wanted to keep him happy. (laughs) Well, we all love it. Before we get into those two cases, I think we all need to understand who you are and the expertise that you brought to these cases when you were working them. So give us a a brief background. Um, When did you join the FBI? Why did you join the FBI? And what were some of the things that you worked on leading up to this case? Well, I became interested in the FBI after receiving a uh, brochure in the mail with a uh, an application, and th- this was in October of 1975. I completed the application, and the background investigation ensued, and I had an interview up in Newark and was offered a position uh, in a new agent's class in July of 1976. I was working for the state of New Jersey as an auditor at the time, and I felt that the Bureau offered me a better opportunity to to enhance my career and plus to travel a bit. So when I was offered the position, there was no doubt that I was going to take it. I graduated new agents class and was assigned to the Baltimore office. I was in Baltimore from November 1976 until January of 1979 at which time I was transferred to the New Haven Division. I worked in New Haven from January 1979 to August of 1983, at which time I was transferred to Philadelphia. I worked in Headquarters City from September 83 until September of 1991, at which time I was 
transferred to the South Jersey Resident Agency in Cherry Hill, which had jurisdiction in Camden, Salem, and Gloucester counties. Okay, and that's where you were when you began these two cases? Yes. And uh, which case are you going to do first? I'll do Milan. In in the mid-90s, the we had a, uh, a task force consisting of FBI agents and individuals from the Camden Police Department and the Camden County Prosecutor's Office, they had been working various violent crime cases to include drug cases, and they were up on a Title III electronic surveillance on an auto parts shop in Camden, JR's Auto Body, which was run by an individual named J.R. Rivera. And over the course of the monitoring, we the monitors were picking up information about politics in the city of Camden. And the name that kept popping up all along was Milton Milan. Milton Milan was a resident of Camden. Uh, he had served in the Marine Corps in the early 80s, was a builder, and got involved in politics. So working on the information derived from the electronic surveillance, we had other sources that were basically telling us that Milan was corrupt and that he was entering into politics and he had his eye on city council and eventually would run for mayor. So we were following up on most of this information. And uh, in November of 1995, Milan was elected to the city council and in January 1996, he was elected president of city council. For those elections, was there any corruption involved or had you heard that he was doing any type of, you know, campaign fraud as he won there those was elections? Nothing had, nothing had come to our attention at that time. Of course, we were looking to see if there was any drug money going into the campaign but as far as we could tell, it was a straight-up campaign, and uh, I don't recall who his competition was, but I don't believe there was too much competition because he had the backing of the city and the county Democrats. So it was more or less a done deal that he was going to get elected, at least to the city council position. In January of 96, he was elected president of the city council. And around that same time, our organized crime squad in Philadelphia was conducting electronic surveillance on the head of the Philadelphia LCN family, Ralph Natal. And they were picking up information that an associate of Natal by the name of Daniel Didone was ingratiating himself to Milan. They had conducted physical surveillance and were able to determine that Milan was meeting with Daidone on a frequent basis. And of course, we didn't know what exactly was going on. Milan was elected mayor and was sworn into office in July of 1997. The Title III surveillance on Natale disclosed that Natalie was interested in getting into the renovation and construction business of, of Camden. There were several federal programs that had been initiated in Camden, and they were trying to get involved with that through contractors. Uh, there was an electrical contractor that they had control of. And what we learned from the Title III was that they were paying Milan 
gratuities, not a whole lot of money, a couple hundred dollars here and there over time, but it was enough to pique our interest and to continue the the, uh, the electronic monitoring. Hey, hey, Bill, could you tell us a little bit about Camden? Um, we have listeners from, from all over the world, so if we can get an understanding of what Camden, New Jersey is like. I know it's a very distressed community. Camden was a hub of industrial activity throughout the 20th century. Esterbrook, Magic Marker, was headquartered there. New York Ship was headquartered in Camden. They built ships during World War II. Campbell's Soup, of course, was headquartered in Camden. They had a processing plant on Market Street. RCA had a very big presence in Camden for many years. And it actually, in, in the building still exists where the television was invented. They had sound studios where artists in the 30s and 40s would come in and record. And, of course, the Victrola was invented there. So Camden had a rich industrial history. But over time, the businesses started to close down and move out, and the population moved out, and Camden fell on hard times. It became a uh, a lot of blight. And of course, with light comes the drug trade, and uh, there was it was just a, a very, very quick demise through the 60s. There were riots that led to the destruction of a number of, of communities in Camden. So it, it was a decline that sort of peaked sometime into the 70s, and it's been a very difficult process to get it back on its feet. So it, it was ripe for people with corrupt intentions which we were soon to find out. Okay. And I know now, even now, it's still known as one of the most uh, violent cities in America with a very high murder rate. Well, they changed from a city police department to a county force, which stirred a lot of controversy. But there were some tremendous gains made in the first couple years of, of the new structure. However, over the past three to four months, uh, Camden's murder rate is up. And from all accounts, it, there are more brazen murders. They're daylight murders. Are they drug-related? I'm really not in a position anymore to determine if that's so. But uh, over the past two to three months, the murder rate has, has increased. But definitely at the time in the late 1990s when you were conducting this investigation, you know, Camden was a city that, as you said, had drugs and violence. Yes, there was. There was uh, the notorious uh, gang, the Sons of Malcolm X. One of their initiation practices was a random shooting or murder on the street. And there was an intense effort to prosecute them. And uh, they were eventually prosecuted. The majority of them went away for pretty stiff state sentences, and, and then there was a drug distribution center called The Alley, and it was an alley behind two rows of houses, and it was an open-air drug market from dawn till dusk, and it was notorious for shootings, drug rip-offs. There was a Camden police officer that was shot and paralyzed uh, during the course of an operation there in the 90s. So, it was it was a very distressed place. And it sounds like it's a place where 
that was in need of a very strong mayor who was going to try to set the city right. Correct. And I think that there was a lot of hope that Milan would be that person, but uh, as it turned out, he wasn't. So we had taken all of this information from the Rivera drug wire, the LCN wire, and we had a pretty good idea that we were onto something with Camden, uh, with the new mayor of Milan. But the, the case took a turn in the, the late summer of 1998. We were working with the, the Camden County Prosecutor's Office, and the prosecutor at the time was approached by a lawyer who had a contract with the city of Camden to be the municipal public defender. And what he told uh, the prosecutor's office and the FBI was that he was solicited for a $5,000 bribe uh, disguised as a campaign contribution in order for him to be reappointed to the position of municipal public defender. Now that's a, a part-time job. He, the lawyer could maintain his own practice and he was required to appear in municipal court one or two nights a week and serve as the public defender. And I believe the salary was somewhere around $30,000 a year. But the interesting thing was that the solicitation for the bribe was made by the municipal prosecutor at the time. So we were able to have the complainant lawyer wear a wire for us and record several conversations over the course of time to elicit the information from him about the uh, the bribe. And we were able to tie Milan into that because Milan was the one that would sign off the approval on the contract. And, of course, the contract had to be approved by city council. So we we were able to obtain a lot of information from those body recordings. And then another situation that we were able to uncover involved, this was before Milan was in politics. He operated a construction company, Atlas Construction Company, and he had a partner named Joseph Darakashani. And they were contra- they received a contract to build 13 houses in East Camden at a place called Arthur's Court. And what they needed was a bond to secure the job. However, they didn't have the funds. So what they did is they devised a plan to borrow the money from Jose Rivera, J.R. Rivera, the drug dealer. So the investigation that we subsequently conducted revealed that they they needed $65,000. They got $65,000 in cash from Rivera with an agreement to repay him $75,000. And they converted the $65,000 in the cashier's checks, had friends and relatives deposit the cashier's checks, and then write checks to Atlas Construction and then they were able to purchase a certificate of deposit that served as the surety bond for the project. Now, that would and then be considered money laundering, wouldn't it? Money laundering, yes. So after they started to get paid for the houses at Arthur's Court, they in turn did the reverse of the same scenario, converting the cash into writing checks, 
depositing them, getting cashier's checks, cashing them, and then returned $75,000 to uh, Rivera. There was also a an insurance fraud that they perpetrated. Uh, they claimed that there was a break-in at the Atlas office. They filed a, an insurance claim for a a computer. Probably at that time, it was in in the vicinity of maybe three to five thousand dollars was was the insurance claim, including the computer. Through our investigation, we were able to determine that it was a staged break-in, and we eventually tracked down the computer from the person who bought it from Milan, and uh, we were able to use that as a piece of evidence at trial. There was criminal activity before he became mayor, before he got on the city council. And then once he was on city council and elected mayor, he had this continuing relationship with uh, the Philadelphia mob through Dan Didone and uh, the ongoing extortion attempt of uh, of the municipal public defender. So we were able to put all of this together over the course of two to three years of investigation, grand jury. I don't remember how many witnesses there were, but for every piece of paper, we needed a witness. There were people looking for uh, certificates to be able to operate in the city of Camden, which required some approval from municipal authorities. So we had to track down the person who reviewed these documents, who signed them, did they know this? was going on, did they know that was going on? So it was kind of a tedious process. And <laughs> it, it was just difficult. There were there were so many different witnesses. But one of the other crimes we uncovered involved a, uh, a trip to Puerto Rico. After Milan was elected mayor, he took an entourage down to Puerto Rico for five or six days. And what we were able to find out was that the money was taken from his mayoral campaign fund. A check was written for, I believe it was $7,500 for a lease payment for office space for the campaign, which we determined was given to him free of charge. He did not have to pay for it. But he wrote a check for lease payment. The person who received the check deposited into the operating account, and then wrote a check to another person who cashed it and returned the money to an associate of Milan, at which time it was split up and went to Puerto Rico for the trip. Some of the money was used to pay the travel agency. So that was another crime while he was mayor-elect, not officially sworn in. Now, let me ask you a question, because you said that uh, this investigation uh, took two to four years. At what time was Milan aware that you were that he was under investigation? Well, the one thing about Camden is that there are no secrets. Everybody knows everybody's business. And so we would uh, we would go out and interview someone and they all congregated at a little bar. I think it was called the Tavern, and it was a daily recap of what the FBI was doing. <laughs> they would, these guys would sit in there and talk. And the, the, this agent was out to talk to me. That agent was out to talk to me. So that that was kind of difficult because they knew who we were talking to. Did that make some witnesses reluctant to talk to you? 
Not really. We we used uh, the grand jury quite a bit, and one, once we get someone in the grand jury, they either testify willingly or if if they have some type of criminal exposure, you know, we might proffer them to to see you know what they have to say, or they could just take the fifth, and then we could always have the opportunity to immunize them to get them to speak. But I don't believe that 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 happened. We did get the cooperation of a lot of people, sometimes reluctant. Uh, there, were, there, were, there were just quite a few interesting characters in the case over the course of time, and I believe most of them did testify at trial. So, And there were some tough stories, some people who had overcome drug addiction and got their lives straight and then got involved in politics and in the mayor. And, you know, unbeknownst to them, they got caught up in this whirlwind of a corruption investigation and and they sort of went back to their old ways. But uh, we, we we were able to move forward. And in March of 2000, we, there was an indictment returned charging Milan with, uh, I believe it was 19-count indictment. It, it included the money laundering and the mail fraud. They charged the extortion for the $5,000 for the municipal public defender. And then there were multiple counts involving the relationship with uh, Didone and Natalie. Tell us a little bit more about that. Was there ever an exchange of more than a few hundred dollars? Did they get into bigger deals? We charged that there was approximately $30,000 in, in payments over the course of probably the 18 months that the relationship was underway. And it, Again, it was based on trying to take the conversations, match them up with bank transactions when banks were matched. And then eventually, um, Ralph Natale cooperated and he oh, was really? able to fill in, fill in many of the blanks of the relationship between Milan, Didone and, uh, Natale. So that worked to our advantage. So this was the boss, the head of the Philadelphia uh, LCN, cooperated yes. in your case. Yeah, and it was one of the – he obviously was, was cooperating in the ongoing organized crime investigations in Philadelphia, and this was one, one of the areas that he, w- he could help, help the government in the Milan scenario. Uh, what I failed to mention was that we in, in 1999, we did a uh, – we executed a search warrant in Camden City Hall, Ooh. and it was, it was the FBI, the IRS, Camden County Prosecutor's Office, and uh, we also searched Milan's home in East Camden, and we we obtained a lot of records that were very helpful for us in uh, in pursuing uh, in pursuing the case. We uncovered a relationship between Milan and a local uh, towing company that had a towing contract with the city of Camden. And in return, they, uh, the tow truck operator uh, provided Milan with two vehicles over the course of, uh, I think it was two or three years. Nothing extravagant, but they were vehicles that he used personally and he did not pay for. And again, you get into all kinds of filing requirements, the public officials. So we we had a lot of weapons to use in in prosecuting these kinds of cases. So what happened to Milan? 
He was indicted in, in March of 2000. There was a superseding indictment. I think it just clarified some, some previous facts. So what kind of uh, time did he get? I take it he was found guilty? Yeah, he was found guilty on all but five, four or five counts. Some of the some of some of the counts he got acquitted of involved the certificates that had to be signed off and approvals. And and, and what was interesting was he was acquitted on the extortion charge. And and of what's the public funny about defender? that uh, the public defender uh, and what what what's puzzling about that is that. When Caruso was tried separately before Milan, the jury hung in his case. I believe it was 10 to 2 or 11 to 1 for conviction, but again, the jury hung in, in the Caruso case and acquitted Milan in, in, in the second case. So, And that's the one count we had really good tapes on, and at least from our point of view, it was very explicit. But it, it didn't matter because he got convicted on all of the other counts, the relationship with the mob taking the gratuities and the um, the money laundering. So he was sentenced, uh, eventually sentenced in June of 2001 to 84 months in prison. And I don't know where he served that, but uh, he completed his sentence. And then now I believe he is back in Camden. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing, but he's not in politics. Oh, that's a good thing. Yes. We have all this swirling around in Camden, and it was sometime in 1998. I took a call. The guy just called in, and he wanted to meet. So we went down and we met him, and he said that there is a property in Washington Township on County House Road adjacent to Route 55 that is in the process of being developed and it just sold at 10 or 15, 20 times multiple of what the farmer sold it for and that the talk on the street was that the politicians were getting a cut of the action. It was County House Senior Care was was the company that was going to build a senior assisted living facility. It had originally been proposed to be a facility for the Visiting Nurse Association of South Jersey, but they backed out. And the plans for the uh, Senior Assisted Living Center went forward. And the company that was developing it was called County House Senior Care LLC. The developers created an LLC to handle the site development. And what the ultimate goal was is that they they would do all the site work, get all the permitting, get some of the infrastructure started, and then flip it to the company that would actually build it. Now, is that typical? That appears to be a very typical operation because if a farmer owns it, it's worth a lot of money, but he either doesn't have the desire or the ability or the money to deal with the whole permitting process, getting the site work done, getting the surveys. And so that's that's how it beca- if you can sell a piece of property that's got all the all the certificates and all the infrastructure underway, the permitting process for the construction of the facility itself and the underground the utilities, it, it's worth a whole lot more. 
But you don't want to just go out and get some land and do all of that unless you know that you have people that would be interested in that property. Correct. And then they buy it with a um, for a term. And then I think in this case, the farmer was getting several thousand dollars a month, a guarantee for a year. And then if they don't get it in a year, then the farmer walks away with twenty-five or $30,000 and he still has his land. So it, it's not an unusual way way to do business. So we started asking some questions, and we were able to identify a bank account. So a subpoena was issued for the bank records, and the bank records came in, and they were really kind of unremarkable until we got probably six or eight months into the project, and I saw there were three checks consecutively numbered, written on the same date for $9,000. So we look okay. a couple weeks later, we find another three checks sequentially numbered, written for $9,000. So the first checks were written to a guy named Christopher, and the second set of checks were written to a guy named Dominic. So the hunt begins for Christopher and Dominic. Well, you just want to talk to them to find out what these yeah, were for? Yeah, find out what it was. So, and I'm not quite sure how this came about. I was probably looking through one of our data systems, and I came up with a hit to an agent who was working interstate thefts from trucks and railroad cars. So I called her, and I, I, I asked her, do you know somebody named Chris? She said, you mean Ronnie? I said, no, Chris, no, his name is Ronnie the Bricklayer. And he <laughs> was a South Philly guy. It was of a, mob associate, a, a mob associate who was a truck driver. And fortunate for me, Ronnie the Bricklayer was cooperating with the government because he got caught in the midst of a hijacking a truck. So we went out and we talked to uh, to Ronnie, and he laid out the whole story. And what he tells me, he says, my checks I signed over, and I gave the money to a guy named Bag Ears. Okay. And so I said, well, what's his name? He says, I don't know. In the neighborhood, they call him Bag Ears because he's got ears like an elephant. <laughs> so this is <laughs> taking a very strange turn at this point. But but we know that Bag Ears is, is Dominic, but Ronnie, the bricklayer, didn't know Dominic was Bag Ears. One of the fun things about this job is the people you get to meet and talk to over time. Well, i got to ask you the question. I take it you met Dominic. Did his yeah. ears look like elephant ears? No comment. <laughs> Maybe when he was younger. What Ronnie told us was that I cashed the checks, I got $500 a check, and I gave back the money to a guy named Joe Loletta. Joe Loletta was a partner in County House senior care. Okay. So what we're looking for is, th this is classic generating cash for some type of a payoff. You got $54,000 laying out there that was converted to cash. So the allegation was that Luongo took money for that uh, project. So we started a financial investigation in an attempt to try and find out if, if in fact that was true, we, we traced several bank accounts 
And what we did find was that there was a series of cash deposits into an account of an associate of Luongo's in New York. And that money was then given, it was deposited into Luongo's account, and at which time he bought a car. So, again, you know, we're we're trying to do this investigation, but everybody in Washington Township is talking that the FBI is poking around. And another thing that's problematic is that everyone talks to the press. And I had a situation where I I received a call about someone that wanted to talk about the land deal. So where else do you meet somebody in New Jersey but at a diner? So we, we met at the Five Points Diner down in Washington Township. I have to add a disclosure here, you know, to make sure everybody knows. I've lived in Washington Township for 30 years, so... I know exactly what you're talking about when you say five points diner. So go ahead. <laughs> so we, we talked to this guy and it, it's just a lot of puff. I mean, he tells us nothing. So we walk out and we, we had parked our car around behind the diner and my attention was drawn to Route 47, which is, creates one of the five points and there's a traffic accident there. So the cops are there, the, the the lights are going, and traffic's all backed up. But I look off into the parking lot, and there's a van sitting there pointed directly at the other agent, myself. And, I, you know, it, it's just weird, but we get in our car. And I'm, I'm no sooner in the office for 10 minutes, and I get a call from a reporter named Maureen Graham from the Inquirer. And she said, how did your interview with so-and-so go? And I, I didn't say anything. And then she said, did you see that van out there in the parking lot? So, you know, this guy set me up so that the press could see we met with them and then they could report a story that the FBI is interviewing. So it, it was very difficult to do anything because, again, everybody talked to each other and everybody talked to the press. Now, were there and, a lot of um, people? T- were there a lot of people telling you, that they had information about uh, the mayor getting some money? Was that a, just a rumor, or were there people who believed that they had information that uh, you know provided evidence to that? Most of the people we talked to involving the, the, uh, the transaction for the senior care facility didn't really know anything about that. They had heard the rumors, but again, we just keep, kept leapfrogging to other accounts. So in the course, we find an account called the Mayor's Community Fund. And it was a fund that if if the Mayor Luongo performed a marriage and he would get paid, he would put it in there. So it was technically township money. But the more we looked at it, the more we realized that he was stealing money from that account to support his personal lifestyle. What kind of things would he use the money for? He had had a condo down in Washington Township that he paid for. Really nothing extravagant. Some trips here and there. He he did buy a place in Florida at some point in time. But the money that he was getting, we couldn't trace the money into that, that Florida property. So, again, the investigation is, is known to everyone, including Luongo. So during the course of, of this investigation that, you know, moved from 98 into 99, it sort of didn't, never really lost steam. We were able to do, do both. We had people helping, uh, other agents helping, of course. 
Luongo was writing letters. He wrote one letter to President Bush complaining about the FBI in Cherry Hill conducting this outrageous investigation. He wrote a letter to the Civil Rights Division complaining about the same thing. So he was taking an aggressive approach to counter this. We were able to determine that he was taking money from this mayor's fund. But in all the documents that we looked at, we could really never find any official action that Luongo took on the um, on, on the property itself. We had planning, zoning. So we were sort of at a, at a standstill in regards to the, the money from County House. We had arranged an interview with Luongo through his lawyer in March of 2001. He came in, it was under the terms of a proffer where Anything he says to us can't be used against him unless he's charged and he gets up in court and denies it, and then we can use that to cross-examine him. And it it was really kind of an interesting interview because I firmly believe that he was waiting for all the questions concerning the county house project. But we started off with the mayor's community fund. It, It was a visible reaction to when we started talking about that. So over the course of several hours, he did admit to taking money from the uh, community fund and using it for personal expenses and started to get into the county house uh, project. And as it turns out, there was a conflict with his his lawyer, who apparently was representing someone else involved in the project. That was kind of frustrating, but what was worked out was that he had agreed to plead guilty to mail fraud and wire fraud in regards to the misuse of the mayor's community fund. So not to let Joe Lilletta off the hook, we had interviewed him about the the $54,000 in checks. And he claimed that that's the way he did business. He He just was an old school guy and he liked having cash to pay bills, and, and that's why he he did what he did with the fifty four grand. He denied that he ever gave any money to to anyone, to include Luongo on the county house uh, project. Why did he say he needed to give the money, those checks, then to Bag Air's guy and the and the uh, what was the other guy's well, name? Ronnie the Bricklayer. Yeah. Well, eventually what happened is that he agreed to plead guilty to to money laundering and structuring on that $54,000 transaction. And could, you explain, he was, could you explain structuring, um, the difference between the 9000 why he chose a $9,000 check each time? Could you explain banks that? Are, banks are required to file a currency transaction reports for any transaction $10,000 or above. So people seem to think that if they do a $9,000 transaction or an $8,000 transaction or a $5,000 transaction on Monday and a $5,000 transaction Tuesday, that it's not going to alert anybody. But uh, today the software uh, anti-money laundering programs are very good and they pick this up. So what he said is he just wanted to avoid filing the uh, – filing the forms and he wanted cash to live his personal expenses. So he was charged 
with the structuring and money laundering and pled guilty. And he was sentenced to was six months out the rest and four years probation. And then eventually Luongo pled guilty to mail fraud and a count of false filing of tax returns. And he was sentenced to serve 11 months for misusing for the, for the charges he pled guilty to. Now, how much money would he have uh, taken from this mayor, this community fund? It was somewhere in the vicinity of $30,000. Okay. I don't consider that chump change. It's not chump change to a lot of people. And he was in a position of trust, and he hid the fact that he was taking it. And, right. uh, he, and they're required to file these reports. Right. And again, it's township money. I live Correct. in a township, and uh, I think uh, the township could have used that money for something uh, in the community, and it certainly didn't need to go into uh, our mayor's uh, pockets. Correct. And what he he served he served his time down in Florida, and eventually wrote a book that uh, I guess you could describe it as a handbook for individuals who are entering the federal prison system. And the title of his book is called Surviving Federal Prison Camp, an Information and Helpful Guide for a Prospective Inmate. So if well, anyone is interested in hunting it down, it was just a unique opportunity to have these two cases come along at the same time. And, and how did you manage that? How did you manage that as far as caseload? With the Milan case, we, we were working, there was an IRS agent assigned, there was uh, investigator from the uh, Camden County Prosecutor's Office, and we had the support of, of the FBI. This, if we needed a surveillance team, we had them. Uh, but but once once the we did the search warrant, and it, it was definitely out there that we were investigating. It just became a process of matching up the violations that we had uncovered with the supporting evidence, and it was just crawling through boxes of evidence, boxes of records that we had. I don't know how many boxes we pulled out of City Hall. And um, and with, with the Luongo case, it was a matter of getting the bank records. So it, I was able to manage it. And again, the Milan case ended in, in 2000, uh, in December, when he got convicted. So from, from 2000 onward, uh, was able to to concentrate more on the Washington Township case. But I have to say, it has to be some type of a uh, a record for you know one case agent to be working two different cases, uh, you know, targeting mayors of uh, you know towns, you know, at the same time. There there has to be some type of record. You must have won some some type of award just for that. Oh, I think I got you know the the typical plaques and letters from the U.S. Attorney's Office and the IRS. And I think at that point I did receive something through through the FBI. I was in tuition mode at the time, so I don't really remember how much it was, but I knew it went. So. What, whatever cash awards you got went right into uh, some college or uh, university. Some college fund. got it, correct. Well, but we had tremendous help from a paralegal with the U.S. Attorney's office named Mark Yerby, who who assembled all of the evidence and ran all of the uh, audio-visual 
uh, equipment we had at the trial. So uh, whenever we needed a document produced on the screen for the, for the jury or the judge to see, he was able to cue it right up. He had created an indexing system. We had given him all the documents, all the evidence. So he did a tremendous job. We had two prosecutors from the, from the U.S. Attorney's Office, one to do the organized crime side and one to do the corruption side. And again, I, there was a tremendous amount of help on all parts. And then you just sort of, you have to hunker down once you, you get, get the indictment returned and a trial date. So uh, I was able to do it. And, and again, the supervisor realized what was going on and I was able to manage that. Well, Bill, I uh, you know, spent most of my career working, you know, fraud and economic fraud cases and financial crimes. So I know how paper intensive those cases are. And of course, there's some agents, I've talked to them on this podcast, who would rather stick a needle in their eye than go through, you know, boxes of search documents. But I love doing it. And it sounds like you love doing it, too. Once you get, once you, once you find something that you, there's a trail and you keep tracing and tracing, I used to like to call it bing, bang, boom. Bing is the first thing you find. Bang is the second. And boom is where it ends up where you think it ended up. And, and there's count one or count two. So uh, it, it's difficult and not fun at times. But the paper speaks and it lasts forever. So it's it's good evidence. Excellent. All right. So I'm sure you had some great cases after these two because – when did you end up retiring? I retired in December 2009. I had reached the mandatory age to leave, submitted my retirement paperwork, and retired on – I retired, I, I believe it was uh, under the retirement system. You had to retire the first three days of the month. So I retired on a Thursday, and I started my first post-retirement project Friday, and my daughter was home from school, and we went where else but to the Home Depot. So I'm walking down the paint aisle, and I see this gentleman at the end of the paint aisle. He's a very distinctive character. He's about six foot six, and he turns around, and it was a cooperating witness from one of my cases subsequent to the mayor cases. And this guy, again, was quite a character. He had cooperated with us and recorded conversations. So here I am, one day out of the FBI, and who do I run into but a cooperating witness? <laughs> and the funny thing you can't, was... You, you know, can't get away from it, can you? You can't well, get away. You know, and he said something to my daughter. He said, you know, if I ever had to be arrested, I'm glad it was your father that arrested me. So... I, <laughs> It, it was just kind of interesting that, you know, I walk out the door on Thursday night and Friday morning, I run into somebody. So you work in, in a resident agency like Cherry Hill, you, you run into people all the time post-retirement and all. So, but uh, my retirement lasted about three months. I, I had an opportunity to go to Haiti in January of 2010 after the earthquake. Um, I was asked by a friend of mine who, they were sending a team of, of nurses and doctors down, and they, they wanted someone to accompany them, accompany them down. So I was down there for probably two and a half weeks, spent most of the time in the Dominican Republic on the border with Haiti. But that was quite an interesting experience to see these uh, 
these disaster teams in action and, and non-government organizations, how they operate. That was probably one of the most rewarding things that I've done, even though I was just unloading trucks with water and clothes, but it was something to see. And so what are you doing now? In April of 2010, I was hired by a company from Maryland. They hire retired agents and, you know, supply their expertise to various field offices to conduct asset forfeiture investigations. So I got hired by this company and assigned to the Philadelphia office, and I am doing asset forfeiture investigations for, for various squads. So the agents can work a lot of, uh, you know, the the majority of the case, and if it comes to financial work, specifically looking for assets, assets where where the illegal proceeds, how they were used, where they went, that's what I've been doing. So I'm, now I was going to say, and again, you just can't get away from the FBI. <laughs> yeah. Um, come July of 2016, I've had 40 years with the. Uh, same organization, approximately 34 as, as an agent, and now this six years with the uh, with West a, River Group with the FBI in Philadelphia. So uh, as a contract, kind of lucky. Yeah, so I, I've seen the bureau change quite a bit, and there is some uh, marvelous people I've met in the past, and marvelous people there now. So there's good work being done, and it will be it will go on continue to be done. And that's the end of the show. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Bill and links to newspaper articles about the Milton Milan and the Jerry Luongo cases. If you enjoyed the interview, please don't forget to share it with all your friends and families. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of this episode's show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons so that you can send out a post or tweet about this episode. And while you're at my website, don't forget to sign up by July 31st for my crime fiction newsletter so that you can become a member of my book launch team and get a free ebook copy of my dark and gritty novel, Pay to Play about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. Lots of listeners have already taken me up on my offer. Thank you for your support. This episode of FBI Retired Case File Review was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening and hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.